Welcome to the Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee of Denver City Council. The Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee begins now. Um, happy Valentine's Day. Today is Wednesday, February 14th. Um, it's great to see uh, folks here. My name is Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez, and I am the chair of the Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee. Um, and that's what we're here for this morning. And um, we're going to start with some introductions. And we do have a special presentation today, so I'm glad that some members have joined us um, that are normally not part of the committee, which is amazing. So I'm going to start on my far left. Good morning, Madam Chair. Stacy Gilmore, District 11. Good morning, Diana Romero-Campbell, Southeast Denver and District 4. I was waiting for you, but I guess you already introduced yourself. <laughs> Laura Lidres, Lucky District 7. Uh, good morning, Paul Tashman, South Denver, District 6. Uh, good morning, Kevin Flynn, Southwest Denver's District 2. Good morning, Darrell Watson, Fine District 9. Hi, everyone. Sarah Parody. I represent the city at large. And it looks like we have uh, Councilwoman Sawyer on Zoom. Would you like to introduce yourself, Councilwoman? Good morning, everyone. Amanda Sawyer, District 5. Fantastic. All right. Um, well, today we have uh, just five items on consent. And... Um, we also have, the only thing that we have on the agenda today is a presentation from Denver uh, Task Force to Reimagine Policing and Public Safety. And we have some folks joining us today. We have uh, Dr. Davis, Dr. Calderon, um, and, and Neil Walia. So I don't know who's taking over the presentation or if, or if you all are tag teaming. Um, we'll do the presentation and then we'll um, open up for questions. We also have Director Saldante um, from Department of Safety joining us today. So if there are any questions um, that relate to, to the department, um, either the task force or the department, we have both um, groups here. So thank you so much for, for being willing to join us today. I put my timer on so that I don't go over uh, my time limit. Thank you so very much for having us, uh, Madam Chair, City Council. I wanted to share with you uh, where the task force to reimagine policing and public safety uh, is currently in the process of uh, doing as well as uh, where we envision moving in the very near future. Um, so we're gonna be talking about uh, the website and how we hope that we can partner with city council around our website, as well as around uh, our office of neighborhood safety and violence prevention. Uh, very quick agenda. I'm gonna move very quickly through a lot of this. This is our amazing team. This doesn't represent everybody, but this is, these are some of the members of our team that's been working very closely around research and other components. And I just want to uh, acknowledge them. Uh, as you well know, the, the task force uh, formed in 2020 in response to the George Floyd protest and working with community members, uh, the Department of Safety, uh, city council and others, we were able to develop a series of recommendations the first 11 of the 112 recommendations is really what we hope to focus on today and to discuss how we are taking the initiative to move those first 11 recommendations forward. One of the things that we have asked of city council since 2021, since 21, is to develop a definition for public safety. And here's the definition that we propose. 
And I'm, I'm so excited because I believe Director Saudate has said that his office will look to bring forth a definition. Um, Councilwoman uh, um, Gonzalez uh, has, has uh, agreed to bring forth a definition so that we can have something the city works from. Our definition is public safety ensures that all members of the community decide how to organize a social environment that provides the freedom to live and thrive with the protection and support of social, physical, mental, and economic well-being. Safety is not a function of armed paramilitary forces with a proven track record of racism and violence. Public safety prevents, reduces, and heals harm. And so we have a two-phase approach to try to implement the first 11 of the 112 recommendations. The first phase is to make our, more, our website more community-facing. We recognize that trying to access data and resources around public safety or engaging in effective collaboration can be a headache for community members and organizations. And so what we're hoping to do, the task force uh, to reimagine policing and public safety will be the central hub for community engagement and collaboration when you provide a one-stop online resource to help the community understand the truth of what is happening with public safety in Denver, where to go to get the resources they need and the tools to engage in effective collaboration. I'm gonna move very quickly through this so I can spend the majority of my time. So uh, later this month, we intend to launch uh, what we, uh, our, our website, which will provide three things, uh, a complete directory of organizations and community leaders that are public safety facing. We want to be able to uh, have a, a, a way to engage community around collaboration, and then also a way to present the data through community's voice. And so objective number one is to serve as the uh, community safety hub. And again, individuals who access our website will be able to identify all of the resources, both uh, direct service providers, uh, nonprofits, as well as activists and community leaders who are engaging in aspects of public safety. The second thing is we want to have a community active activities portal so that organizations around the city can know what other organizations are doing so that they can uh, highlight their initiatives and give ways for each organization to support what other ones are doing, et cetera, et cetera. And then lastly, uh, we, are, uh, we received a grant from uh, the Microsoft uh, Catalyst Grant to develop uh, our dashboard, uh, which we are in the process of doing. We want to thank uh, the Department of Safety for their uh, participation and cooperation in that initiative. Uh, we hope to take the information, much of which is already available, but to uh, synthesize it and to share it in a way that is accessible to the community, meaning that it's shared through community voices so that as individuals are looking at data, they're able to tell what that data means from a community lens. Uh, the, the one that we'll be first launching uh, is around uh, pedestrian and vehicle stops. Uh, that Again, that should be launched in the next week or two. We're just working out the tweaks on our, our website to get this up and running. But we also uh, have access to other dashboards around the city, the DA's office, other ones that the Department of Safety have put up. And we're continuing to compile information so that what we want to do is to tell a complete story of what it looks like for community members from their interaction with law enforcement to how their cases are handled in the, in the district attorney's office to how it is adjudicated uh, in the courts. So that is, our, that is our desire to have a complete story told all the way through. We recognize that that's a long-term project, but we're starting to build the system step-by-step. Step. And so the website is designed to help us to transition, uh, building upon the work of the task force, 
uh, the website. Uh, we hope to bring community together to collaborate, create, and evaluate community-centered public safety solutions, which takes us to phase two, which is the real reason why I'm here today. The Denver Task Force to Reimagine Police and Public Safety will hopefully be the central hub for community engagement and collaboration around public safety solutions. We will accomplish this through the community-centered initiative called Community Alternatives, Partnerships, and Solutions. You've already heard that name before, uh, but the approach is significantly different. Uh, before we talk about our vision, let's just understand why we need the community to take the lead in developing this CAPS office. Currently at its best, policing is designed to patrol communities with the hope that police presence will deter crime. Second, police investigate crimes that have already been committed. Third, police apprehend criminals who have committed crimes. And lastly, police intervene to disrupt crimes in process when possible. The training and tactics of law enforcement is centered around these responsibilities. What's the role of community then? The role of community is to come together and to develop preventive strategies and to implement new uh, initiatives and programs that actually reduce crime and that uh, uh, ease the burden on law enforcement resources. So uh, we wanna make sure from the on onset, this is not an us versus them approach. This is us and them rec recognizing that community has a, a serious responsibility to take as much of a load off of uh, law enforcement and to minimize interaction between law enforcement and its cities, and its communities rather. So expanding on the work of phase one, the Denver Task Force to Reimagine Policing and Public Safety is developing a community-led, and this is where the difference is. Initially, when we came forth, we asked the city to stand up a Office of Neighborhood Safety. We have been in collaboration with our uh, national partners, and we believe that the best approach moving forward is for community to actually stand up the, uh, the office uh, that we call CAPS, Community Alternatives, Partnerships, and Solutions. And so here's a pretty uh, general overview, and I'll go a little more in depth. A general overview of what we mean when we say community alternatives, partnerships, and solutions. Community means that it's centered in the community, led by the community, designed for and by the community. Alternatives means moving away from an over-dependence on law enforcement as the primary means of public safety. You've heard me say this over and over again, those of you who have heard me, that we as a society have become very lazy, and every time that there's a public safety challenge, our knee-jerk reaction is to turn it over to law enforcement to say, y'all solve this. Uh, one of the examples that I always give is when you have children, a hypothetical, uh, you have a group of kids who are hanging out in the park at two o'clock at night, making loud, uh, keeping up you know, loud noises and music and all this other stuff, and the first thing we do is we say, okay, police, these kids are hanging out in the park, y'all need to do something about it. When in actuality, these are not the police's children that are out in the parks making these noises. So how do we as a community figure out how to solve little challenges like this without calling someone with a gun to solve it? We need to really begin to think through when, when is it necessary to ask someone with a gun to intervene? And when do we as a community need to put on our thinking caps, as my grandmother used to say, to put on our thinking caps and figure out how to solve these various challenges. I use a very elementary example, but I want that same concept to be applied to an even deeper uh, public safety issues and public safety challenges. The community has the solutions and the community should be held responsible to develop the solutions that is already inside of them. When we talk about partnerships, we're talking about developing strategies to bring organizations uh, and leaders together 
transitioning from the silos that exist not only in our city but across the nation and to uh, foster effective collaboration. And when we talk about solutions, we're talking about implementing evidence-based non-law enforcement solutions and evaluating its effectiveness. And so CAPS community, as I just shared with you before, is developing a mechanism whereby community can come together, community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood, and can actually have access to the resources, the research, and the thinking power to develop effective solutions for their communities that does not involve or overburden law enforcement. When we talk about alternatives, we talk about the fact that we are hoping for CAPS to function as Denver's community-centered think tank, dedicated to developing alternatives to policing and the criminal prosecution system as the primary means of addressing public safety. CAPS will identify the underlying socioeconomic determinants of violent crimes and develop community-centered solutions that keep people safe rather than punishing them after the damage has already been done and lives have been destroyed. Uh, again, when we talk about alternatives, the goals are threefold, to create an equitable infrastructure for non-punitive, non-law enforcement, holistic healing approaches to public safety. Two, to provide proven violence prevention and intervention strategies. And three, to encourage communities and neighborhoods to develop non-law enforcement solutions to their public safety challenges. When we talk about partnerships, we're talking about how do we uh, have an outside community-centered agency that helps to evaluate how well city agencies are actually working together to improve public safety. Again, not just putting the responsibility at the feet of the Department of Safety. Uh, then also uh, and, and, and a community entity that can identify and foster partnerships among nonprofits and community organizations so that we're optimizing community resources for non-law enforcement programs and initiatives. Uh, how do we provide a one, and we also hope to provide a one-stop support to nonprofits and community organizations to identify and access funding opportunities and develop collaborative participatory budgeting strategies to strengthen funding, eliminate organizational silos, and maximize resources. And when we talk about partnerships, we're talking about conducting citywide community engagement and networking activities to co-create policy development and evaluation. And over the last few years, this, is, this has been the task force bread and butter, bringing community together, setting up a place for community members to talk and to think through solutions. And what I attempt to do is to create a calm, less reactive environment for that type of dialogue to take place so that we can elevate best thinking and propose best solutions and or implement best solutions ourselves. And then when we talk about solutions, I'll drop to the bottom one, which is simply put, CAPS will propose new programs and initiatives that address public safety challenges and evaluate these programs to measure their effectiveness. Again, this is the responsibility of law enforcement. So when we look around the nation, there are approximately 52 offices of neighborhood safety slash offices of violence prevention. If you notice something dead smack in the middle of this map where Denver is located, there are no offices of violence prevention, no offices of neighborhood safety, none in Arkansas, none in Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, um, Nebraska, Colorado, et cetera, et cetera. So this gives us an opportunity to do two things. To number one, bring this kind of national thinking to the city of Denver. Number two, it allows us to develop a new model because all of the other offices of neighborhood safety and violence prevention 
are centered in some aspect of government. Of the 52, only six of them are centered in a police department or the Department of Safety. But the other ones are centered either in the mayor's office or some other uh, uh, governmental office. We, 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 having gone through this process now for the last three years, have come to the conclusion that there is a model whereby community can take responsibility and can lead this initiative. And we are in the process of putting that together. And that is what I'm coming to share with you and hoping that we can develop a partnership uh, with all of the various city entities that allows us to accomplish this. And so our ask is threefold, and then I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Calderon, who, how much time do I have? I'm doing pretty good. Number one, as I've asked before, I've asked for the last several years, we need to develop and create a definition of public safety. We have given a model of what that looks like, but city council needs to come together and develop a, a definition of public safety so that when we enter into collaboration, uh, city agencies and community, we are all working from the same definition so that we're all agreeing this is the vision, the goal that we're moving toward. We have to have one for our city. It's kind of like using the word love. What does love mean? Now, those of us who follow the Christian tradition, we, we get our definition of love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But if that's not your definition, then we need to have a definition that we're working from because words like love and uh, words like uh, 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 safety are all relative. So the city can't just use a vague terminology. We need to have a definition. We also, number two, want to do what we're already doing, and that is continuing this ongoing collaboration between the task force, city council, the Department of Safety, and then, of course, Money, 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 money. We need assistance with identifying funding. So we are asking for assistance and support around identifying private and government funding for this initiative. As I shared with you, we are working with our partners around the nation. When we initially came to you, we said we would like for the city to stand this office up. We've come to the conclusion, as I, as I just mentioned a moment ago, that it is now time for the community to take responsibility for this particular initiative and for community to actually stand this up and for us to become a national model, uh, for us to bring to this area of the country, because we'll be the, as you saw on the map, we'll be the first one in this country to do it, to bring to this area of the country uh, something that is realistic, something that is doable, something that is effective, something that has worked other places and if we can work together, it will work here as well. I'd like to, uh, at this time, uh, ask Dr. Calderon to come and uh, to present on a couple of other issues before we uh, entertain questions. Good morning, council members. It is not lost on me that today on Valentine's Day, we are speaking to you uh, about a very important issue around transformative justice and that is rooted in love of our communities. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Calderon. I am here as the Executive Director of Women Uprising. I also served on the Reimagining Policing Task Force, helped to edit its, and create its 112 recommendations, um, and also was co-chair of the uh, Mayor Johnston's Transition Committee on the Office of Neighborhood Safety with Neil Walia. Um, so I'm speaking from all of those lenses. Um, first, so I want to uh, express appreciation to those of you who voted uh, to fund uh, the Office of Neighborhood Safety, who listened to our calls for that. Um, Councilwoman Alvidrez uh, 
Gilmore, Gonzalez Gutierrez, Lewis, and Parody. Uh, thank you for voting yes for racial justice um, and, and healing in our communities. And also as someone who uh, protested and participated in the George Floyd uprising um, demonstrations, I want you to know that I appreciate that you have heard us, and especially in solidarity with the Black community, that you have heard us and our pain. Um, you know, the um, particularly uh, Councilman Parodies who listened to us on this, uh, the budget request, the past budget request uh, for uh, funding the Office of Neighborhood Safety uh, for Councilwoman Gilmore, who said that we've been talking about this since 2020, and it's clear that neither the Department of Safety or the mayor made it a priority, and there are ways to make this work. Uh, Councilwoman Lewis, who talked about that these practices come directly from black and brown communities. Uh, it would create cost savings and create resolution that is outside of the criminal legal system. Um, and Alvarez, who said, you know, yes, people want more public safety, but if not now, when? And, um, and it's true, right? Justice is inconvenient, uh, but is necessary. And of course, uh, Madam Chair Gonzalez Gutierrez, who brought us here and is following through on creating that definition of what public safety means from a community lens. So we thank all of you uh, for that. Um, and we also thank those of you who were on the fence but supportive and not quite sure um, where things should go. Um, Torres, Cashman, Hines, and Sawyer, um, we appreciate your thoughtful discussion on this matter. As Dr. Davis said, we have decided to take this matter into our own hands. After we had very robust community conversations uh, as part of the transitional committee uh, for Mayor Johnston, we had, I think, three public meetings more than any other committee uh, from uh, the trans uh, transformation committees or transition committees. And at every single meeting we heard communities saying that they want this initiative. We held these meetings in the historically redlined communities, um, and it is consistent with the researcher, um, Dr. Huss, um, who said yes, through, uh, she had presented to you previously, this is an office that is needed, the community supports it, they wanna see the details worked out on it, but it certainly could go far in healing and transforming, and in fact, um, just a quick excerpt of her words. This office represents a tremendous opportunity for the city of Denver uh, to break down silos, an opportunity to take an innovative multi-sectoral approach to enhancing community safety, which will improve both quality of life and safety related outcomes and an opportunity to meaningfully engage the community and in doing so build trust promote healing and break the cycles of perpetual trauma and adverse impacts caused by historical racism. And I think that's so very important. We cannot talk about restorative justice, transformative healing without talking about the harm that is caused uh, by this, uh, by the criminal legal system, uh, quite frankly. And as Dr. Davis said, we have been talking a lot with folks around the nation who support what it is that we are trying to do, support that it's being a community-based initiative and that it is right to not seat it in the um, safety department. 
In fact, when I talked with the mayor about this and said, you know, you had us do all of this work, where is it going to go? And he said that he is going to put it under Director Saldate under public safety. And we said, absolutely not. Because that, you do not understand that that is antithetical to what it is we are trying to accomplish. And in talking with people around the country, they agree. That one of the principles is that it must be community-based. It must be community-driven. And it must be rooted in our own community indigenous practices around how to heal our communities. And you cannot have a system that has harmed our communities be the lead on directing what it is that we should do. And I just want to leave you with this. We had participated in a Vera Institute restorative justice conference. And it was focused on peacemaking, repairing, and transformation. And one of the things that came away with is that you cannot use the same system that has been used to harm and oppress us to be the ones to heal our communities. So it is a system, the criminal legal system dehumanizes everybody, even those with the most benevolent intentions. It is not a healing system. It is an enforcement and punishment system. And if we want things to be different, we have to use a different model. And these are models that we have used historically throughout our black and brown and indigenous communities. So I would ask you to think about and consider, we are not asking you for money. We are not asking you to sanction it into the public safety department. We are asking you to continue to partner with us in community around launching this. We are going to have a community convening to talk about best practices to be a partner with us in that. Thank you for your time. I'm assuming maybe some questions. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure there wasn't anything else you wanted to say before we went to that portion. No. You're good? All right. Well, thank you so much for the presentation. I see folks already queuing up here. So we'll start with Councilwoman Alvidrez. Thank you, committee chair. I was trying not to be the first one, but the people were slow on the gun here. Thank you for that valuable presentation and all of that great information. And I love that. What I, what I think when I think back to my district and my community is that one, the communities of color in my district are rapidly gentrifying and there's just not a lot of organization in them. And so when I think about being community-based and I think about, for example, RNOs, like that's the best community-based um, organization that we have in the neighborhoods that I represent. Um, it's really hard to get people to show up. It's hard to get to people to be involved. It's hard to have people feel included. Um, and so I'm concerned that some kind of community-based thing can fall apart, but due to gentrification, due to people being pushed out, due to bullying, due to hate that I've seen in my community, especially like this time and through you know election years, it tends to be a little worse. So I wonder what your thoughts are around that. So I think that when you develop a mechanism that engages the community, even as the community's demographic or the face of the community begins to change, the structure and the uh, philosophical approach, if you have the right model, will, will encourage and will foster dialogue. The, the objective 
is to, again, twofold, as, as Dr. Calderon shared a moment ago, the objective is, is twofold. Number one, to return back to every individual community, individually, uh, and then to community collectively, the responsibility of figuring out how it keeps itself safe without an over-dependence and reliance on law enforcement. Uh, so regardless of what the demographics or the face of the community would be, you would, you would still want to make sure that all the voices are heard and that there's a mechanism in place to, to ensure that. But second of all, this type of entity allows us to be able to have experts, researchers, and, and leadership that can help to inform these communities when they are making core and destructive choices around public safety. This is, we, we, this is gonna be a long process because unfortunately, not just here in Denver, but around the nation, the knee jerk is problem arises, put it on law enforcement. Kids are showing out in school, who are you gonna call? Not Ghostbusters, call the police. Uh, people are having mental health crisis, who are you gonna call? Call the police. And you can just go down the list. So it's gonna take some training and it's gonna take working with communities to, to help them to understand and to cooperate around developing best solutions, not just punitive solutions. Does that answer your question? It kind of does. And I think that the best thing is one of your recommendations, which is to have an ongoing uh, conversation and an ongoing relationship um, as we try to figure this out. Because I think, you know, I just obviously am focused on Little District 7. And I look at other parts of the community, like Westwoods across Federal. We have Montbello, I think, that are very organized and have that community basis. And I just don't see that um, organization and collaboration in, and honestly, these are working class families that are like trying to put food on the table and trying to get by. And I don't know if any of those meetings were on the west side of Denver, were they? Uh, primarily virtual. Okay. We, we did. Um, I mean, the ones that were referenced in red wine communities. We did, we had a um, meeting uh, at the Denver Indian Center and okay. um, so it was great to have uh, not only Westside participation, but indigenous participation as well. Uh, and in response to your question, uh, Councilwoman, it's a very good one because that is also a strong message that we heard from our national partners, which is the people that you choose to do this are very important. Uh, and, and they need to be chosen from the community, not a public safety department, not someone who picks winners and losers, but the community who says, this is a person that I trust that we trust, that has a track record of working in our community, that has community capital and credibility. And so, uh, and I, I share the concern around gentrification of how we were losing a lot of community knowledge and wealth. But I think part of that is also um, when you choose the right people and they're linked up with, for example, your office, then we have an, uh, an opportunity to institutionalize the effort. So it's no longer about the individual but it's about the collective effort that it keeps going, regardless if somebody moves on or not. Okay, thank you. And I think, let me just look at my notes really quick. Yeah, um, I really appreciate this effort. When, when I just think back to even the last week in my district, well, or adjacent to my district, like there was a 13 year old that pulled a gun on someone and was shot on Mississippi and federal. And so I definitely see the need trying to figure out how to move forward and figure out 
you know, how do we really involve these diverse community voices at that table and continue to keep that going. So thank you. And that's all my questions. Thank you, committee thank chair. You. Uh, Councilwoman Gilmore. Thank you, uh, committee chair. <clears throat> thank you, Dr. Davis and Dr. Calderon for the presentation and all your work on this. And, um, you know, following up on my colleague's uh, statement around Montbello, and I'm really proud of our neighborhood and our community, how we have come together with our nonprofit partners. We have Struggle of Love. We have Families Against Violent Acts. We've got Montbello 2020, Mock. I can go on, Athletics and Beyond, et cetera. Um, I think that your strategy of moving this out of the idea of a government holding this and providing that in community and just wanted to understand, are you talking about like a separate 501c3 nonprofit? Are you looking at partnerships with like DU, Auraria? I'm just wondering because I think that there's great opportunity in also highlighting the career paths that young people in our neighborhoods are hungry for and that support and how much we have right here close to home and how um, that also helps. You know, it's one thing if we have a group of parents that are maybe, you know, like Struggle of Love says, you know, we're going to be on the ground in the neighborhood when things are going on. Um, you know, if we have fights breaking out around Montbello High School, it would be much better if we had groups of parents who were there, who were able to say we're here, what's going on, instead of calling the police. And that training that is necessary that I think like struggle of love does, etc. I have so many questions because I think this opens the community, quite frankly, up to the support. I mean, there should be $25 million available for nonprofits throughout our community to provide youth and family support. We know that. Nobody has taken that up to try to make that happen. And so I share that with you because as we're facing our budget deficit, the first things that are getting cut are rec center hours and youth activities which is horrifying because we know what follows when we don't have that support. And so I have two questions. One, what is the makeup of how you're going to structure this? And then two, how are you looking to advocate or bring and help with all of our help and support as well, those resources and how we can kick this off with community support because we're going to need places for kids to go and activities and the city quite frankly we don't have the funding and so those are my two questions and thank you for allowing me the time to kind of we've got a long history and back and forth and we know we are all committed to this work and um count me in as a, a supporter from the word go but yes those two overarching questions so i'll, I'll start with the first part of your question uh when the task force first formed it uh, was just a, a, a totally um, community-led volunteer, as each of you remember. But then we had foundations that wanted to fund so that we could get researchers and could expand the work that we were doing. And so uh, the nonprofit called Season of Grace Unboxed became the, uh, uh, the one that would manage those funds, would make sure that uh, the work and everything was, was, was continuing to move forward. 
So we would grow out of that since we already have a 501c3 in place. Uh, the, but however, we recognize that this is a new concept in that we will be the first in the nation that is 100% community-led, community-organized. So it's fluid. But right now we do have an instrument in place to be able to receive funds, to allocate funds, to make sure that uh, we can hire the appropriate uh, individuals and things of that nature. And of course, that's going to grow and, and, and move as, as, as this uh, initiative continues to grow. Does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Yeah, thank you. And I'll just add, um, Neil and I's first meeting uh, for the Office of Neighborhood Safety and Transition Committee was in Montbello at Athletics and Beyond with Marcy Jackson. And that is a recognition that these communities are hungry for these kinds of initiatives and they are doing great things. And how can we support them and increase their capacity? Um, part of this initiative was to have a technical assistance piece of it around the training, around capacity building, and also um, connect the metrics across communities because oftentimes you don't know what's happening in another community unless you're in that community. And so for us to be able to map that out, who's doing what, who's doing it well. And we know that evidence-based practices are a luxury because they require money of researchers to come in and study it, but there are promising practices going on every day in our communities that we never hear about. And so that is um, uh, another um, big piece of that. Um, let's see, there's, oh, and then when you talked about the cutting of the hours of, of rec centers and what comes, you know, keeping rec centers and after school activities and all of that, we know is a crime prevention strategy. And so we're going to pay one way or the other, right? So we either invest at the front end uh, where it's always cheaper or less expensive than on the back end when we are cycling people in and out of incarceration. So we share those concerns. And, and, that's, and to your point, uh, as Dr. Colorado was just saying, that's when we talk about P partnerships, that's one of the things we hope to do is to be able, as she said, to be technical assistance so that organizations who are doing similar work are not fighting and competing for grants and resources. Uh, I know how that, I think all of us here knows how it goes when you have to fight for grants and resources. What if we can develop, as we shared, uh, collaborative participatory budgets so that everyone gets an opportunity to have access to resources versus a foundation saying, you know, we're only gonna give one organization X amount of dollars. What if we can help them to come together to consolidate their, uh, um, their programs and their resources. You know, that's what we want to provide. And we would work with individual uh, council members. We would work with individual communities and community organizations. That's the whole purpose is to be there to bring community together. Wonderful, thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Councilwoman. Uh, Councilman Cashman. Thank you, Madam Chair. And thanks for the great presentation. Um, really exciting, as a matter of fact, you know, we've been I, I remember when Dr. Davis, you and I sat with uh, Director Soldate in my office, and this was one of the topics that come up and came up. And, and the director has been very uh, interested in the establishment of this office. And uh, uh, but you know, as government can do, things stagnate for a bit with, with other uh, focus. And uh, I, I really appreciated Dr. Huss's report as dramatically underfunded as she was forced to work with um, and appreciated her statement that we should in fact stand up such an office. But I, I agree with you uh, basically that 
I've always thought it, it should be situated outside of, of government. Um, I, I believe it would need to be structured so that it had a close working relationship with, with, with uh, our Department of Safety. But I'm really, I'm really excited about where you're at thus far. You know, the, the devil's always in the details and we'll see how that, that proceeds. But uh, I, I'm really interested in, in the structure that, that you're presenting. Um, uh, it, we've been so, along with what Dr. Calderon j just spoke about, we've been so unfair to law enforcement since the concept began in this country by asking them to solve all these problems that we allow to fester because we don't fund. We talk a great game about how important our children and our families are to us, and then we don't fund it. You know, we don't fund education uh, near what it needs to be funded, especially in Colorado. We don't fund mental health, especially in Colorado, drug treatment, especially in Colorado. And so we, we wonder and we act surprised when, when our crime rates go through the roof. Um, I have great respect for our, our police department. I believe uh, badge, uh, people wearing badges play a role in law enforcement. But as I've been saying uh, the past several years, unless we invest um, historic amounts of money in proactive programs that stop the pipeline where we keep spewing out people whose only path to, to getting their needs met is through criminal behavior. And I believe we can stop that. I believe that completely. So we're sitting here in a, in a budget year where we got to cut some dough somehow. But uh, as I told the mayor, uh, hitting children's programs, uh, it's a bad, a bad way to save, save temporary dollars. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm, I, I look forward to hearing more about as you develop your, your thoughts about how caps might might come to fruition and uh, as, as my my colleague councilman gilmore said uh, sounds great uh, i'm really look forward to helping along the way uh thank you madam chair thank you uh council oh yeah i'm so sorry the fact that you uh, elevated uh, a few points but what i was going to say we've had a very strong relationship with uh, director sarate um he's not going to say this but I'm going to say this, which is, and he's never said this to me, uh, so this is coming from me, and that is uh, law enforcement has their hands full. I think we all agree on this. They have their hands full enough uh, with the various challenges. I think that it's unfair to continue to just keep piling on their plate, to continue to keep asking the Department of Safety to do more and more things. I think that we need to be, uh, we need to do what they do in medicine, which is to try to get folk to be more specialized and hyper-focused on one aspect versus trying to expand and, and, and be, um, his name just slipped me, the doctor from, uh, from Walnut Grove on, uh, um, I'm showing you how old I am, but from uh, um, Little House on the Prairie, who did everything and got paid by chickens. So we need to, we need to transition from that model. Thank you, uh, Councilman. Councilman, or Dr. Calderon, did you have anything you'd like to add? I think just the thing that was resonating with me as you were speaking was, um, and again, talking to these other entities across the nation is that uh, 
law enforcement, some, some um, have close relationships with law enforcement and some don't. Uh, but for those who did, that they were no more important than anyone else around the table. Mm -hmm. They were a community partner, just like everyone else was. So they didn't have more or less weight. Uh, and that was really a model of, of, you know, being more equal with voices. Um, so, you know, that, that's all that that made me think about. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, next, we have Councilman Flynn. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, what uh, what do you see as the relationship with the Department of Safety under this model? What would how would you interact, liaise, work with? How, what does that look like? Well, of course, that would that would develop as as our initiative develops. But I think uh, we would expand what we're already doing. You know, since uh, when the task force was first formed, let me just give a little his, historical background. The task force was formed because in a meeting with the Ministerial Alliance and Mayor Hancock, I asked to have the um, Use of Force Advisory Committee reconvene, but to look at public safety as a whole, not just use of force. Um, he then, Mayor Hancock then put me in touch with then Chief Hazen. Went to Chief Hazen and Chief Hazen said something I think was very wise at the time. He said, this is not something that law enforcement should lead. This needs to be a community led initiative. So we did just that. We reached out to community partners and we were able to form, many of you who are here right now, Councilwoman Gilmore, uh, Councilman Flynn, Cashman and others, were able to see that how large uh, we were able to bring uh, community voices together to think about solutions and to really work on this. Unfortunately, there was a period uh, under Director Murphy when the Department of Safety removed itself from conversations with the task force. But we continue to move forward. And then under Director Sarate, the Department of Safety has come back and said, hey, we want to be a partner. How can we work together? I think we've done a very strong job uh, in, in working together. So we would expand upon that. As Dr. Calderon said, uh, it's not about who has the strongest voice at the table. It's ensuring that everyone has an equal voice at the table and that the most relevant and the most constructive voices are elevated, not necessarily the people who have the title or the names, but who's coming up with the most constructive solutions are the ones that are elevated. And also respecting those who do not want a law enforcement intervention. Um, you know, having served victims of domestic violence, a majority of those never called law enforcement. They didn't want to for various reasons. And still, they didn't want violence in the home. They didn't want to be victimized anymore. And so when we look at restorative practices, we have to recognize that we are, I mean, we, we say equal, we also mean equitable. Not everybody's gonna get the same thing. What is necessary for one situation isn't gonna be necessary for another one. There'll be certain uh, opportunities where it would be a law enforcement response, having their voices and part of that process is appropriate and there will be other times when it won't be because that's not what those constituents want for their situation. And so by having it based in community, it, it allows us to be fluid uh, with those options. Mm -hmm. So we wanna increase the range of, of options for people. Thank you for bringing up the domestic violence. Because uh, uh, I was gonna ask a different question now, but let me follow up on that. Uh, I had some personal experience in my neighborhood with a former neighbor couple, 
And so if I use this example, uh, Dr. Cotteron, maybe you can tell me how would this model have handled this? The, the wife crawled to my front porch. This is hard for me, by the way. Uh, rang the doorbell, bing, 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 constantly. I thought it was my daughter harassing me, you know, 1030 at night. And when I looked out the door, I saw her on all fours on the porch. And she said that her husband had thrown a chair at her and it hit her and it turned out, I found out later, it ruptured her spleen. And her husband came out in the driveway and was screaming, oh, that's right, go call the neighbor, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I got to call Denver police, you've been assaulted. And she begged me not to call the police. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I, I have to. I'm not going to not call the police. I'm not just going to, I don't know what to do with you. And so the police came and there was, charges were filed and she dropped the charges. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if, uh, if that were to happen in my neighborhood again, they've moved away, it was like three neighbors ago, uh, 20 years ago. If that happened again, how would your model handle this? Because the, the victim of domestic violence said to me, please don't call the police. But it wasn't because she was afraid of the police. She was afraid of her husband. How does that, how does this work? Thank you for that. It, it was very, very, very difficult. Visceral example, because that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, when people talk about transformative processes, they'd often think about um, the kind of lower level kinds of offenses, nonviolent. And what we've learned in our conversations is that for those violent type of crimes, um, the more restorative they can be, the bigger the impact. Uh, from my training, and I'm still working with um, justice-involved and victimized women, that first you always start with asking them what do they want, and they will tell you. And even if you do not agree with what we call counterintuitive behavior, because intuitive behavior is we call the police, counterintuitive is we listen to what they want, even if it's against what we think should happen. And when we start at that point, what you'll probably hear is that she wants safety. She would not have come to your door, right? right? First and foremost. Refuge. Exactly. Right, exactly, refuge. And then the question is, what does that look like? Because if she was planning to stay, and oftentimes we, we, we put the responsibility on the victim uh, about uh, leaving instead of on the person causing the harm about why did you cause the harm, what a restorative practice does when they are given the opportunity and, and from what we're hearing from these models like common justice, they actually have a very high rate of both the person who was harmed and the person who doing the harming um, wanting to have a solution of restoration. Now that doesn't mean that is another opportunity to cause harm. There is accountability in the process, uh, but that's where we always start is what do they want and how can we help keep them safe in the way that they define safety? Okay. And we need to have we need to have uh, opportunities available to the community. One of the challenges that we, we struggle with now is that we don't have too many other opportunities besides dialing 911. So it's, you know, either go back in the house and get assaulted more, get beat on more, or uh, call the police. And what community has a responsibility of doing is developing alternatives to say, oh no, there are a series of other solutions that are available and to be able to, to access those other solutions that if the individual doesn't want to involve law enforcement to give them those opportunities. Now I'm not a 
domestic violence expert as Dr. Calderon is, but we, I do know this much, we have to be able to think beyond either or solutions. So in that moment though, when she was ringing my bell, what should I have done other than call the police? So um, is who else can I call? Who is your support system, right? If we, so if we actually had a restorative model in your neighborhood, on your block, and that's the, that's the key here, it has to be very place-based, right? That's how we build relationship uh, from community, from community, and that's often block by block. If we had a restorative circle in your neighborhood, that is accessing, like, like you know, the neighborhood watch program, something happens, who do you call, you have a call tree or whatever. Now it's next door, kind of. Um, but we would uh, have a network of people that you could then tap into, that she could then tap into. Because I can't tell you, um, Councilman Flynn, how many times through many years that scenario has played out over and over and over again. And if I were to tell someone, you have to report, you have to get a protection order, it doesn't work. It doesn't make her safer. It doesn't reduce violence in that family. And there's also a lot of shame that goes into someone who is causing harm. Right. So that's what we're talking about is creating those um, networks of support where people can call on, activate, uh, rather than having to go through uh, an emergency system, which could then escalate the situation further. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the last question I had was about the definition of public safety and building on uh, Councilwoman Alvidrez, who uh, I think has left. Uh, I have some of the same concerns about how do you identify, how do you select who makes up the community. Uh, we just leafleted about 1,200 uh, dwelling units uh, for a neighborhood meeting and we had like uh, about 15 people show up. So when you say public safety ensures that all members of the community decide how to organize a social environment that provides the freedom to live and thrive how do you ensure that that actually represents the community and not just self-selected folks like yourselves? Let's talk about how the task force did that when we first uh, came into existence. Uh, we, we had a series of virtual, because it was during COVID, we had a series of virtual meetings right. where we asked community members, whoever showed up, who should be at the table? Who are we missing? Once we convened that table of who the community said should be at the table, we then took the next step. I reached out to every single council person's office and asked them, is there anyone who should be at the table? And nearly every single council person recommended someone from their district to serve on the task force. Almost every last one of them did. Said, I would like this person right here to be. So that's, and then when we got that together, we took it one step further and we said, okay, who's missing from the table still? Now that we've got who the community, who, who showed up at the initial meetings, now that we've got who council says should be at the table, Who's still missing? And you continue that. That's not a conversation. Of course, we had to had to cut it off at some point because we had a deadline we were trying to reach. But that is a conversation that is constantly ongoing. Who is missing from the table? And when you have when you ask that question a series of times, you begin to hear more and more voices. How do you then have them actually show up at the table? You do exactly what the task force did. You reach out to them one to one and say, hey, listen. You have been, you have been uh, uh, identified as a community partner. Will you please show up at this particular meeting? Will you please come? And that's how you get individuals specifically to show up 
And it is a model that I didn't come up with. It's a model that has been used for hundreds of years. And it's a model that will, if, if, if implemented again, will work again. So, and that's one of the reasons why we say the task force community already knows how to do these things because that's how community moves. Mm -hmm. And our partners help us in these, in these approaches. Okay, I, and I remember that I, I suggested one person who did join the group that I thought would be great because of her lived experience. And there I, I can identify, I think, three other folks from my district who were part of your, your meetings. Uh, but there are 65,000 people in my district and, and everyone else's district. How, how do we honor that commitment and make sure it's not just this group? No, there's never a situation where everyone shows up. But if you are intentional right. about ensuring that all voices are heard and you have a process in place to ensure all voices are heard, if you have the right process, there's a 99.9% .9 chance you'll have the right product. So the process is what is so important. And if we follow the process that I just articulated and other processes that have been shown to, to yield similar results, then you will get representative voices at the table. You're not going to get 65,000 people no. to show up in a room at any time. That's just, no. it is what it is. And you, and you but wouldn't want that. If you are intentional, and yeah, you, you wouldn't be able to get much done if you did do that. But if you are intentional about making sure that all of the various groups are represented, real quickly, one of the people, you know, we, when, we, when we did this process, we recognized that with all of that, we still had not invited anyone from the uh, uh, AAPI community. And there was no representation from the um, uh, indigenous community. And so we actually sent out and reached out. We said, how can we get them to the table? Who's, how can we get them? And then they said, here are additional people in our community that you need to. We found one person from the uh, um, Native American community who then connected us with multiple other organizations, which gave us a robust voice and input. So these are the type of approaches that, that you take in order to ensure. You're not going to get 65,000 people. Right. but you can get a very good representation of the thinking of the 65,000 people. And just quickly, that goes back to the process being fluid. So oftentimes in um, official processes, it's like, we've got our people and that's it. No one else can come in. When it's a fluid process, people can come in and out at any yeah. time, depending on their needs. And I, I think back to um, who, you know, I think was a great manager of safety um, who I, you know, who welcomed community and had a great relationship with Al LaCave. And Al's orientation was, if people want to help, let them in, right? Because at the end of the day, the, the work usually gets done by a small group of people anyway. And so, but, but the problem comes in when we start saying, you can't come in. So if we keep a fluid process, but a process that everyone understands, um, that's, part, that's part of what's different as well. Last question, under this model, I assume that there could be situations where there'd be legal liability for outcomes. And how would that be, how would that be handled? So the, what we are proposing is not to be the service provider. There are already right. entities doing the work. And so they already have their procedures, their legal liability, so they're, they're et cetera, insurance. right? We, are, we would be the networkers um, help with training and evaluation, technical assistance, et cetera. Um, so, yeah. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Councilwoman Parity. Yeah, thank you all so much for the time and for, the, um, it, it's just such a um, like well-organized illuminating presentation. I will be referring back to it a lot. 
Um, I could ask so many questions, but <laughs> I have three that I want to um, that I want to ask that I think um, are kind of worth our discussion time today. Um, I'm turning over in my mind um, this community-centric model, which I think makes a huge amount of sense. And I'm curious. Um, we've done a lot of looking at other kind of uh, government uh, offices of neighborhood safety or government adjacent ones. Um, what office around the country, if any, do you think is the most similar to what you envision or what you would hold up as a model, whether that is like a government type of entity or a nonprofit entity? And if you don't know off the top, that's totally fine. I'm just curious, like what are the, um, like the um, North Stars that we should be looking to? So we just had a meeting yesterday uh, with an organization called uh, Force Detroit, which is a violence intervention. Their, their specialty is, is violence intervention. But again, they are 100% community-led, community-organized. They have a very constructive relationship with law enforcement, but law enforcement is there to assist them not to be the, the lead in the, in the process. So that's just one model. Uh, and there are other models around the nation from the diagram that I showed you. And at the end of the presentation, there is actually a list uh, we were just invited to join the Office of Violence Prevention's national network so that we can meet with all 50 plus of their organizations and can begin to think through how something looks here in Denver from a community-centered perspective. But off the top of my head, uh, Force Detroit comes to my mind. Uh, and we had a very constructive meeting with them just yesterday. And also the Vera Institute had a restorative justice uh, con convening that's uh, posted on YouTube. And one of the speakers was Mike Milton, who is the executive director of the Freedom Community Center. And so they are actually completely outside of the system and really look at the um, community practices that are that, you know, that what he says, this belongs to us. Um, and that, you know, you have to look at not using a system that has been harming you to keep, you know, as a restorative model, like know everybody's lane. Uh, and so that's another one that I would encourage folks to check out. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's really, really helpful. Um, another kind of, I guess, similar question is uh, we hear words like, you know, conflict resolution, mediation, violence interruption, restorative justice. Those are all very different things that have a lot of like rich context to them. Um, and I think sometimes they become buzzwords a little bit. Um, so I'd be interested to know, um, you all have obviously done a lot of thinking about the existing city ecosystem, both things that exist within Department of Safety, things that exist within like the Office of Youth Violence Prevention, um, th even things that exist um, in community here in Denver. Can you talk to us about um, where this this organization uh, it differs from from all that package of things that we have. I mean, you've been doing it, but I'd just love to hear more if you have a thought about that. Yeah, so I, I think part of it is really also, again, evaluating what's out there, but let me just give you an example. Um, recently, and I won't mention the organization, but recently there was a call for families to help train them on conflict resolution. And they were charging families 100 to 200 dollars to do that mm. now if we're talking about the most impacted families we're talking about black and brown families we're talking about working class families they don't have 100 to 200 dollars about how to reduce conflict in their homes uh, and so that is not restorative uh, practices that is an industry and so that's been part of our concern is that when we see conflict resolution models it's often through uh, the lens of a nonprofit industrial complex uh, that does not necessarily, you know, they, they need to be accountable to funders. We are gonna go after funders as well, 
But one of the pieces of feedback that we got was that funders need to also understand what your values are. And if our value is we should be helping our community for free, and that's why we need you to fund it, that is a value that we can embed from the very beginning and be part of our technical assistance and sustainability building with other organizations. Be specific on what you ask for. Okay, thank you for that. And then this is a little afield of the presentation, and I know there's two folks in queue with questions after me. But I remember that there's been a back and forth between the task force and the city about implementation of the 115 recommendations. And in particular, I know that there's been back and forth about what reforms that we actually made within the Department of Safety in the wake of the summer of George Floyd and what the task force originally recommended. We've sort of heard back that reforms have been made, but I'm a little fuzzy on kind of what reforms, and I think the details of that really matter. So I'm curious what the task force has learned about those and kind of like what progress we still need to make. So we've actually, if you go to denvertaskforce.org, you will be able to access a portal that the Department of Safety developed where they articulate how they've attempted to implement the 112 recommendations. And then you'll also be able to see our response as to where we agree that they've implemented various recommendations, each one, one by one, and then where we believe that they have implemented it in part or where they have implemented it at all relative to the spirit of how the recommendation was initially presented. And so that gives you a literal recommendation by recommendation breakdown of how that process is going. And so we have continued to be in collaboration and consultation with the Department of Safety. I'm glad to see Director Zarate and his staff here today because this is something that, this is not something that's going to get solved overnight, but it's something that we have to continue to work on. We disagree in several areas, and I apologize I don't have the actual list in front of me, but again, if you go to denvertaskforce.org, you can have access to that list, and you can see where we're still trying to figure out how we come to an agreement on various recommendations implemented. And what about specific to, I'm sorry, Dr. Calderon, I was going to narrow the question a little bit because I think one of the things, we've seen a tremendous amount of sort of public attention, rightfully so, to large payouts for police brutality. And so I'm curious in particular, the recommendations the task force made spanned a really broad set of, a broad subset of like what you could consider related to public safety. So I'm curious about what reforms have been made specifically to prevent incidents that have led us to all of these kinds of payouts in the last couple of years. Right. So I think the definition that will be worked on, and hopefully we're going to start with the community-based definition that the reimagining policing came from or came up with, because I don't believe we have a common understanding of what reform means from the public safety department perspective versus from the community perspective. Reform is used so often that it's almost lost its meaning. Prior to the George Floyd uprising, we had worked on reforms for years. We were part of the use of force advisory committee for both the police and the sheriff. And then those policies went out the window when people were violated for expressing their rights to protest against the police. So 
we have been having reforms. We have the Hillard and Hines report for the Denver Sheriff Department. So reform is not the same as transformative justice. And that's what we are going for. And not just, you know, we're, you know, right now staying the course, as opposed to we're looking at we need to think much bigger than we've even talked about reform before. It needs to be really redefined. And that's what transformative justice is. We are beyond reform. And to be honest with you, Councilwoman, we have spent so much time as a community. If you look at the 112 recommendations, you will notice that we did something a little bit different. We did not spend as much time trying to address the use of force policy. That policy was already constructed. We were promised that it would be implemented. And the very first opportunity that the city had to demonstrate that they were going to follow that policy, it was thrown out the window. No one was held accountable. We don't have any officers that were directly held accountable. No one in leadership was held accountable. And yet the taxpayers of this city were the ones that were held accountable because we have to pay all of these settlements and lawsuits that have been a result of it. So with frustration, a high level of frustration, what we've said is how do we just minimize law enforcement's footprints in our communities, especially our most vulnerable communities? And that is the lens that we have been operating from. Because unfortunately, over the last 150, almost 200 years now, yeah, almost 200 years now, we just have not been able to figure out how to stop law enforcement from causing harm on black communities in particular and minority communities in general and marginalized communities. We just haven't been able to figure that out. And so now we need to move to a total different model, which is how do we just minimize law enforcement's footprints in our communities and empower communities to take responsibility of their own public safety? Thank you all so much. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. And I think there's lots of definitions, right, that conflict with one another or maybe aren't kind of the same across the system, like recidivism, for instance. It means different things, whether you're in pretrial or in community corrections or Department of Corrections or on probation. It has different meanings. And so I really appreciate the conversation. I will next go to Councilwoman Romero Campbell. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you for the presentation today. Dr. Davis, it's Dr. Baker in Walnut Grove, just so you know, I was right there with you as a big fan of the Little House on the Prairie. But I did want to share with you, actually, it's two questions and a statement. I have been born and raised in Southeast Denver. It's the community that I represent now. And as that community has, you know, our family was part of integrating the neighborhood. And I think about the recommendations that are being put forward. And so can you talk a little bit more about like the intentionality of, I think, when you have a community that the demographics are changing and where, when I think about being represented in a neighborhood and being represented in a neighborhood where maybe everyone doesn't look like you on the block, I would hope that these sort of recommendations or the effort would also be across the city and just not in concentrated areas that were being discussed before. Do you have any thoughts about what that might look like or a rollout? Again, that's the whole purpose of this initiative is to be able to identify community by community, even neighborhood by neighborhood, 
what are the resources and solutions that are needed there to identify who are the individuals that are already attempting to solve these problems to provide those entities with the resources and the support that they need in order to do their job more effectively. I don't have all of the answers, mm -hmm. but one of the skill sets that I do have is identifying people who have the answers and then elevating those voices. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's, the, that's the primary function of this entity is to identify who has the solutions for very specific problems. Because even when we talk about domestic violence, domestic violence solutions in an impoverished community, uh, one impoverished community will look very different than domestic violence solutions. And even though they have similar underlying principles, the implementation of those principles will look different in community A and community B who have similar economic uh, backgrounds. So we need to, again, identify, elevate those voices that are actually doing the work, provide them with the resources to improve the work that they're doing, and then to actually make sure that they have the means to implement those, those solutions. Right, and, and I think while we can't people because there simply aren't the resources for that, um, that uh, one of the questions that, that got posed by Mike Milton was that asking first and foremost, what are the needs? Because when people have needs, often that's when harm follows, right? And trying to meet their needs without those adequate resources and being left to their own devices. And once we understand that, then it's about collective responsibility. So, um, you know, I am responsible for you because you are my neighbor. I'm responsible for you because I don't wanna be harmed by you anymore, or I wanna give you the opportunity to also redeem yourself and come back into community. So I think that through this project, we can identify those best practices about you know, look at how they, you know, on their block or in their neighborhood had a restorative process that was driven by community um, and, and from people with different socioeconomic and racial backgrounds who still felt, felt in collective responsibility with each other. And those are the lessons we wanna be able to amplify across the city. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I also think, and I know that you haven't um, identified specific, it's, it's been kind of broad in general as far as like, the community members that are engaged, but I think specifically about the number of older adults and the elders that we have in our community. Oftentimes those are the folks who are also, you know, calling about safety and wanting to have additional um, police in the neighborhood. And I'm, I'm just wondering, I think that there's a space maybe to intentionally call out the role for older adults and elders in our community to play a role. Um, I look at the demographics in Southeast Denver and I think about the demographics that are across the city and we have an increasing number of older adults. And so that intentionality of being able to pull them in um, to these conversations into um, the solutions. And I think uh, that is a tremendous role you know, I go to the uh, District 3 CAB meetings that they have, and the room is packed, and it's packed um, primarily with older adults who are interested in wanting to know the data and wanting to be engaged and involved. And I think that, you know, being able to bridge that conversation and, and pull in more people as part of that community solution. Um, I know you haven't pulled out, you know, all the specific uh, um, uh, populations, but I just think that there's a, a place for our elders in this role. If 
important point that a lot of the practitioners we heard from as well, which is the role of elders, mm -hmm. who historically in our indigenous communities, because we've all come from somewhere historically, were the role of the wisdom keepers, right? And so uh, when we rely more on law enforcement, the role of the elders gets eclipsed. And so just um, quickly, Mike Milton again said, he had a restorative uh, practice that they didn't, that's not what they called it, but it was when he was fighting uh, with someone when he was a child, both of the grandmothers uh -huh. got together, had them stand in a circle with everyone who had watched the other kids and said, what happened Can, you know, from your perspective, what happened from your perspective? And it showed him that they had two completely pers different perspectives for the same fight, uh -huh. but, but it came from the grandmothers who said, you need to talk about, it. we go to church together. And I think having that elevated, identified, highlighted um, is, is an important part of this work. Mm -hmm. And yeah. part of the frustration with our elders is that uh, they have very few solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, if the only solution that you have, if the only thing that you have is aspirin, then no matter what your sickness is, you have to go to the aspirin. What we're saying is we need to expand that. So a lot of our, mm -hmm. a lot of our elders would love to have access to other solutions. Because the thing that they ask when it's their grandchild who's arrested is what can we do besides put them in jail? What can we do besides lock them up? So they're looking for other alternatives. And the problem is if the other alternatives exist, it's not widely accessible to the community. Or number two, they just don't exist. So the only solution, which is similar to what uh, Councilman Flynn was talking about a moment ago, the only solution is to dial 911 and say, we need an officer out here as well as an ambulance. That's, that's the only solutions that we got. What we're saying is we need to put more solutions uh, into the uh, community ecosystem. Yeah, yeah I appreciate that. Um, I was the kid who got in the fight at the bus stop and my mom had to talk to um, my friend's mom uh -huh. uh, and work it out. So I completely uh, relate to that conversation and it was many years ago. Uh, but I think that those are the kind of solutions in creating that space, especially when I think about um, the district that I'm representing and being able to bridge across a role for um, our older adults and our elders in this conversation, because I think there is a lot of education and options and other tools that are needed in the toolbox. Um, I don't have any further questions. Thank you, Madam. Thank you, Councilwoman. Uh, Councilman Watson. Uh, thank you, Committee Chair. And I'll be really quick because I know we're um, about at time. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Davis. Thank you, Dr. Calderon, for uh, this presentation. I appreciate the thoughtfulness uh, and the work that you've done over the years. And this is not just one presentation. This has been uh, a multi-year process from uh, beginning after uh, George Floyd and even prior to that. So uh, your work is appreciated. Uh, I know within this uh, presentation and the work that you're doing are great solutions, ways in which that the community can enhance uh, at times the current work that the uh, Denver police are doing and ways in which the community can actually take the lead. Um, and I share this uh, because coming from a space of being a West Indian, growing up on the, the island of St. Thomas, 33 square miles, uh, we have within our island, obviously a police force, um, but our community leads our public safety process. Um, when there are conflicts, um, I was on the east end, which is kind of the poor end, uh, the, the country end. Uh, many of our neighbors didn't have phones. Um, we, when we had conflict, came together and solved those conflicts. If there were conflicts that we could not solve, we then engaged police officers who oftentimes were our cousins, our 
our brothers. I mean, there was a familial um, uh, um, 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 engagement between police and community. So I see this as a yes and, and I think that's something you stated, Dr. Davis. Uh, I think finding ways in which alternative responses for police are necessary, and this can be one of those tools. Having this uh, community-led uh, program, not within Denver police, and having it outside and within community uh, makes sense to me. And I look forward to sitting and listening, understanding more of the details. And that's where most of my questions are gonna come into once the details are more clear, um, listening with you and engaging with community on some of your solutions. So thank you so much for your presentation and all of the good work that you've done on this. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you so much, uh, Councilman Watson. Um, it's perfect. I know. I know we went over probably the presentation time, but it's actually fine because we didn't have anything else on the calendar, and we did that intentionally because we know that we've had some really great presentations come through, and we end up running out of time. So I'm actually really glad that we didn't do that. Um, I do want to invite um, Director Saldante, if you wouldn't mind, to come up um, because I know that we've heard a lot of um, from Dr. Davis, you know, saying that that you have been working with them. I just I just had a quick question around what are the ongoing conversations? What are the, what have those been like? Um, is there, is there an appetite to partner with city council around this like definition of public safety? Um, I know I would love to work with you all on this and, um, and, and to um, fulfill the commitment, right? That, that I think us as a city um, have to our community. Thank you, um, Madam Chair uh, Gonzalez Gutierrez. Thank you, Council. Um, I was happy to join today and very excited to hear about this update from Dr. Davis and Dr. Calderon. Um, Armando Saldate, Executive Director of Public Safety here in Denver. Um, I've been a, a proponent of this work and the task force since its inception. In fact, I was one of the initial participants on it. Um, and when we were removed, when I got into this space, I think I've shared with you all one of my first calls uh, after calling my mom was to call Dr. Davis. and tell him um, that, that it was a priority of mine to start working and re-engaging with the task force. Also, this work has gone a couple of administrations now, right? And, and uh, under the, um, the Hancock administration, we were talking about this work, the study that Dr. Huss had done, had been done under that, that I'd always been supportive. I participated in that. And I wanna be clear on, on what my, my stance was then, and it really hasn't changed since now. My stance was very clearly from the community was that an Office of Neighborhood Safety was something that was wanted, and it was also something that wasn't going to be built in the Department of Safety. I've supported that, and I've never advocated for the for opposite of that. I've never advocated that it be built here. I've, I've listened. I've, I've maintained that I think it has. As we transition to a new administration, um, this topic has gone on. It, it, it was part of the, the budget discussions last year. Obviously, there were a lot of priorities last year um, around, especially our initiative around House of Thousands. So um, where it's landing and where it could be land, I, I've spoken with Councilwoman, uh, 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 Co-Chair uh, Parity around this. You know, I, I, wherever it lands, and there has been discussions in the mayor's office, there's been ongoing discussions around the department that's standing it up, working with the task force, I've maintained um, you know, the, the, the dialogue back and forth. And there have been mention of it being in safety, there have been mention of being in other spots. Now that we're dealing with the budget environment that we're in, it's also a difficult conversation, where does it land? I will assure you now, as I've always been consistent, 
I will support it no matter where it's at. I will support it with not only people and resources and things like that, but I'll support just with my participation and my support of things like now. The, the, the data that, um, that Dr. Davis is talking about that, they're, that the, um, the task force is gonna have on their website, me and Chief Thomas have been opening the books for, the, for that data. We are trying to any block any day they've been asking for. We've been working with Dr. Belknap and, and Dr. Davis's team around getting it for them. Um, we wanna have that data, we want it to be, and we, we want to, to help the success of this. So I think I can speak for the entire department but particularly in Chief Thomas, because me and him have spent the most time around this and working with Dr. Davis, you have our support. We think that it's part of our, our strategies around crime reduction, particularly violent crime reduction. Police can't do it alone. Uh, everything that Dr. Calderon and, and Dr. Davis said about that, we can't do it alone. We, we cannot arrest ourselves out of these problems. We can't, we need community involvement. We need community to take ownership, a lot of those. One of the things that we that we talk about, just a recent instance of a, a 13 year old that is 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 being charged with a murder. Um, I think Councilwoman Alvarez mentioned this. You know that one. I, I was I was thinking about that, and I'm thinking that's a space for community. I think people in the community probably knew this this young person was probably on a path to to not a good a good path, right? And and where can we help support community for the intervention there? until before it's too late when we're called to a problem it's too late mm -hmm. and and when the police are called to that and into that that it's been too late so we need to empower community voice more i think this represents a a, a good way in doing that and i also want to mention around the the research around um other community other other offices of neighborhood safety i've been doing this even before the task force first brought vera institute in which has done a lot of work in this space I was researching Richmond, uh, California, Baltimore, some of the initial onsets of this. It is different in different spots in different parts of the country. It's different on where it resides, how it's set up, and then really that community ownership. I was just at a conference that the Department of Justice um, hosted in Indianapolis in December. And it was, a, it was a space where we were talking about violent crime reduction. And we were talking about, and we had um, instances, best practices from around the country coming. And each one of them talked about, some were set up in a mayor's office, some were set up as their own office, some were set up in a department of safety, and there were just nuances around it. So I know that, th that we're gonna continue the dialogue no matter what, no matter our budget environment, you can count on my commitment to support it. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Director. Uh, and I do want to thank you for being here this morning. And, and thank you, um, folks from the task force for also being here presenting these updates. Um, really appreciate the commitment behind these efforts. And I think part of the goal that uh, myself and Vice Chair Parity have is, um, you know, looking at how we can continue these conversations and bring them here, right, where council members can engage in um, open dialogue around these things. Uh, and, and that we continue to, to kind of keep pushing um, forward, right? We, I, I, and I appreciate you, Director Saldante, you know, in your statement that as soon as you um, uh, became the director that your goal was to re-engage. And, and I think that does speak volumes. And so it's kind of now we're, we're here with the new administration and I think things were kind of, I think at a little bit of a stopping point. And so now I think the question is, is what's next? And, and how do, where do we go from here? 
Uh, and so it sounds like you've got council members who are pretty engaged here and, and wanna continue this conversation and, and see what kind of um, next steps and action can be taken. So thank you all for joining us today. We had five items on consent, um, seeing no opposition to that. Those will move forward to the full council. We are adjourned. Thank <laughs> you.